The sacrifice of God is a troubled spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you shall not despise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can go ahead and have a seat. This week, in addition to uh, Krista's ordination, there has been a lot of activity here at the church property. Throughout the week, we've had masonry laborers working around the building, repairing and cleaning the exterior limestone. You may have noticed it as you came in. These laborers did much needed and good work. God bless them. Also this week, one of our neighborhood groups took on the project of painting the back hall where the younger kids in the garden have their classes. It looks fantastic so far, and they'll be finishing up in the weeks to come. Among other things, in the near future, we'll be having a variety of inspections and work done on the building. We'll in particular have an inspection again of the building's foundation, which continues the inspection work that was done during our purchase earlier this year. As you might expect, a foundation inspection involves getting into the dirt, going below the surface, going subterranean to see what's really there. In a similar way, our reading this morning, especially our psalm, invite us to go below the surface, to consider what is really there, both in our own lives, but also when it comes to the character of God, the ground of all being. As we muck about in our biblical text this morning, I'd like to organize our time around thinking about what is below the surface with us and what is foundational when it comes to God. So first, under the surface with ourselves. Psalm 51 is among the most famous of psalms in the Bible. With almost painful rigor and desperation, the psalmist examines the substrata of their own life, their heart, their center of their being. And what they find is not pretty. Four times in these 17 verses, the psalmist refers to their own offenses, their wickedness, their misdeeds, or transgressions. The most stirring expression might be found in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in wickedness, and in sin my mother conceived me. I've always wondered if the psalmist's mother would agree with that assessment. But the sense the psalmist has of themselves is not that of like a near miss, This is not a picture of a person who's in need of like minor behavior modification. The problem they identify is not remedied by education or by new habits. The problem is genetic, is pervasive, inescapable. Reflecting on this passage, the ancient and great Christian preacher John Chrysostom likens what is described in Psalm 51 to falling into a deep pit of mud. Think of falling into the retention pond out back after a heavy rain. And Chrysostom argues that what is described here is much worse. Because however messy the trash, the dirt, the mud might be in such a fall, it remains entirely external. Whereas what the psalmist describes here is, and I quote Chrysostom, defilement generated from within. That's a phrase that might be hard to wrap our minds around this morning. Seated here in our appropriately casual for Austin Sunday finery. Defilement? Really? 
Psalm 51 has traditionally been read in relation to David's adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. Pretty terrible stuff. And what David, the psalmist, perhaps, is reckoning with here is his own capacity to do such things, to exploit and destroy others. Actions that have caused him to question the very quality, the very nature of who he is. How are such things possible? What do these actions say about me? Anytime you do an inspection on a building, on your home, there's a certain amount of trepidation. What will be found? How deep of a problem? How extensive the damage? Yet the truth is, of course, that repair can only begin when the truth is revealed, when the full extent of the need, the lack, the damage is exposed. Do you want repair in your life? Do you want to be made whole? Consider the state of your life, things done and left undone. Not as this means of self-condemnation, of wallowing in a sense of your own badness, but as a step toward repair. That which is not acknowledged as broken will not be repaired. I suspect we may not have to reckon with murder. Some of us may very well have to reckon with adultery, with infidelities and unfaithfulness, with the exploitation of others, with abusive patterns, with greed and envy, with a disregard for the needs of others for the sake of our own comfort and ease with the desire to control that leads to impatience, anger, and resentment. As the psalmist expounds on the state of their heart in Psalm 51, in light of these actions, verse 3 stands out as particularly curious. Against you, God, only have I sinned, David declares. Think, really? Like, the man is dead. Uriah is dead. He might have something to say about it. Bathsheba might have something to say about it, considering the, the wild difference in power they wield. Yet this God-directed statement speaks to the reality of the psalmist's sense of themselves before judgment. In our contemporary moment, we would emphasize the horizontal nature of our sin, right? Against others, harm done to others. But the psalmist sees themselves as having fallen glaringly short of this transcendent standard. I think this relates to Paul's statement in our New Testament reading about being the worst sinner of all. That feels a little bit dramatic, perhaps. And elsewhere, Paul writes about the righteousness he had as a Pharisee, the religious rigor with which he lived his life. So this statement only seems to make sense if what Paul is describing about himself is kind of this exemplary thing for all of us a paradigm for us all, the status we all share before God. We are all the worst of sinners. In light of the holiness of God, in light of the glorious nature of the life he has called us to, we each of us are right to consider ourselves among the worst. I don't mean to bring up something painful, but you think of the football game yesterday. You think of the field goal missed or the safety that wasn't called as a safety. And the reason those matter so much is because 
The Longhorns lost by only one point. But that'd be irrelevant. The near misses would be irrelevant if they lost by like 35 or 40. You'd be like, we're just the worst, whatever. And the temptation to compare ourselves, to think, well, I'm better than them, I'm worse than them, is rooted in a sense of like, well, we're all kind of near the target. But the reality that the psalmist and that Paul seem to be getting us in touch with is that the standard's not like the ceiling. The standard is the sky. And we are all then the worst of sinners. Comparison, the near miss, does not matter. As I said, some of this might be difficult for each of us to recognize, to see our own sin, to see the brokenness of our own lives. In David's situation, in 2 Samuel, the excavation of his moral life only takes place after the prophet, Nathan, calls him out, traps him in this story, and says, you are the villain. You are that man, the one who has exploited and done violence. So often it is others who can help us see ourselves. I may not readily see the ways I fall short, the ways I am stiff-necked before God. But in allowing others to get close, in allowing myself to be known, there may be the help to see. I have had the gift of people in my life who have been able to say, Peter, you are that man. This does not make sense. This does not look like following Jesus with integrity. Another way we might grow in consciousness of our own sinfulness is through a consideration of the world around us. To consider how the reality that we see and experience doesn't accord with the life we see in Jesus. It doesn't fit the descriptions we see of his kingdom. And then from there, to reflect upon the way our own lives, our own hearts, participate in that falling short, in that brokenness. That the world we inhabit falls short of God's glory and intentions is reflective of the way that we fall short as individuals. Whatever means by which the Holy Spirit might use to get us to this place of recognition, to this excavated subterranean recognition, I want to encourage you to welcome that work, to welcome the troubling of your own heart. This is counterintuitive. As Psalm 51 points out, it's comparable to being broken or crushed. I would so often rather hide from or medicate away the reality of what I've done and what that reveals about me. But it is only the troubled heart that can be made new. It is only in seeing ourselves as we are below the surface, as grievous and sobering as that might be, that we can begin the path toward repair. I know a number of people, a number of men specifically, who would point to crisis moments in their life where hidden sin, often sexual sin, has been exposed outside their control. And it was horrifying. It was mortifying. 
And I do not mean to like minimize the pain that those around them especially may have felt in recognizing this reality, seeing it. But I know a number of men who would say that was the moment that repair began. And I am grateful to God. It was a severe mercy, but it was necessary and it was good. It is the broken heart that receives mercy. This truth then moves us to consider what our readings might suggest about God. What is the bedrock of his character and his disposition toward us? One of my first acts as a pastor was the creation of a softball team for young adults. A few people were here, here were on that first team. And we had a great name, the Good News Bears. <laughs> and we had a lot of fun and a lot of spirit. But as one player that first season remarked, we were mostly good news for the opposing team. <laughs> On the very first play of our very first game, the player at first base, a petite PhD student in art history, had her arm broken when she was run over by this behemoth of a base runner on his way to an inside the park home run. Later on in that very first game when we were dozens of runs behind, the opposing team's manager separated their own shoulder while sliding home face first. At that moment, I remember thinking a couple of things. First, sports are a lot more serious here in Texas than they are in Canada, where I'm from. And second, I am going to lose my job. I have <laughs> led lambs to the slaughter. That first game, and every game except one glorious game that season, we only played two or three innings. Because at that point, we were something like 18 or 24 runs behind. So there was no point in culminating. The mercy rule was invoked. In our incompetence, we received a strange form of mercy. Just an aside, a few years ago, Church of the Cross actually formed a softball team, and we were pretty good. And they were also really well-named. Their name was Anglicans in the Outfield, so another good name. <laughs> now, the biblical concept of mercy is among the most celebrated of God's attributes, closely tied to what is translated as God's loving kindness. And both terms appear in Psalm 51. And mercy describes God's willingness to not proceed with punitive justice, but to consider, as we sang, another way, to make a way in response to sin and wrongdoing. So with the good news bears, those teens were punishing us. And in a way, it would have been just, it would have been an accurate representation for us to lose by 50 or 60. But there was mercy. And with God, as our readings today suggest, mercy is a distinct possibility because it is God's desire to show mercy well before the third inning of our lives. As we will sing later on this morning, his nature is always to have mercy. But the mercy of God does not reflect an apathy when it comes to the reality of sin, to the reality of transgression. Our reading from Exodus 32 reminds us of the severity of God's anger when his people refuse 
gracious and just purposes. In Exodus 32, the construction of the golden calf was this construction of a symbol that had some familiarity for the people of Israel because of their time in Egypt. It was a return of sorts to a God that they, to gods that they could see and control. It signaled their rejection of Yahweh, their rejection of his desire to make them a free and holy people, a blessing to the nations. It was their refusal to participate in his good purposes in the world. This connects with David's situation. The man that David kills is Uriah the Hittite. He is not of the people of Israel. And at this moment, where the kingdom of Israel and David's reign have grown to this point, where the people of Israel are actually able to exercise influence and to be, to live into the blessing that God calls them to, to be a blessing to the nations, it's at that moment that David strikes down this foreign man, this man of the nations that he's called to bless. And so David's murder is this similar kind of stiff-necked, unbelieving refusal to participate in God's good plan. So it is with our sin, however dramatic, however ordinary or hidden. And such a rejection rightly arouses this response of justice. All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious purposes, failed to give him the weight he's due, have marred his image in ourselves and among others. Lord, have mercy. An interesting structural element of Psalm 51 is the way that terms for sin or transgression are dominant, are repeatedly featured in the first half of the psalm. But these lessen and disappear as we get to the closing verses. In the back half of Psalm 51, it's terms for God, the Lord, that begin to appear more frequently. One commentator has pointed out, sin disappears in the same ratio that God appears. Where a holy God is, sin cannot remain. And what we look forward to in the, the full realization of Jesus' kingdom is the eradication of sin. We welcome that. We long for that. But it leaves we who are sinful in a precarious position. A number of early church teachers reflecting on Psalm 51 and connecting it to other psalms sometimes spoke of the double gaze of God. That God looked with sin, looked upon sin with absolute justice. And as a good God, we would hope for nothing less. But at the same time, they suggested upon people, upon his children, he fixed his gracious gaze. He looked upon them with mercy, open to seeking out a way other than punitive justice. Such a double gaze is made possible in Christ. By Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, God accomplishes the judgment required for transgression. And through faith, Christ's righteousness is made ours, such that God's forgiving look is unbroken upon you, unbroken upon me. And God willingly did such a thing, gave up his son, 
because it was his desire to show mercy. It is not God's desire for destruction. It is not God's desire for evil intent for you. He desired to show mercy because it brought him glory. This is the clear teaching of both our Old and New Testament readings today, that God receives glory, greater glory, not through the exercise of just judgment, but through the exercise of his enduring mercy. It's to the praise of his name that he longs to show you mercy. It's to the praise of his name that he doesn't hold your transgressions against you. Most weeks, we begin our worship with the act of confession. That is an act of worship. It brings God glory for us to acknowledge the reality of our sin because he delights to show mercy. Not because sin is not a big deal, but because it honors him. It honors his son to have dealt with our sin and to hold it against us no longer. So we, today, who are caught in sin, who this week have been freshly confronted by the disorder, the ugliness of our own hearts and lives, can eagerly confess, need not hide, but can draw near to him, near to the one who longs, who is happy, who desires to show us mercy, who longs to cleanse us, to make us clean. Some of us, I think, take Jesus' teachings with Peter about forgiveness, right? You know, seven times 70. We take that way too literally. And you're like, I'm getting close to that 490 point. The point is not that there is a number. The point is that it is beyond calculation, the immense patience of our God. And we're going to sing about it, but his mercy endures forever. There is no point at which he will turn his back on those who confess their sins, who are grieved by the reality of the brokenness in their lives. So don't come far, come close, come near, and he will cleanse. And were the good news to end there, it would be enough. But God's mercy and his justice, his righteousness, work in us to such an extent that our hope is not merely cleansing, the blotting out of our sin, but our hope is repair. Not merely righteous credited, but righteousness infused. Not merely a heart washed, but a heart made new and restored. God is able to strengthen you, as Paul writes, to create in you a new heart, and to sustain you with his willing spirit, such that you become a renewed, a restored participant in God's purposes in the world, such that you become a, a living prototype, an example of his power to make things new, such that your life can teach others, can bear witness to God's merciful ways in the world, a living example of what God can do with the very worst of sinners. That word create in Psalm 51 is not make, is not fashion, it is not working with what is already there. It is a verb that in the Bible only has a divine subject. This is a creation that only God does. 
And it is the taking of what is marked and stained by sin, your heart and your life, and it is calling forth what is not there in and of yourself. It is the making new. And that is the glory of God. That is to the praise of his name. That is the desire of God. It's for this reason that he seeks what is lost. It's for this reason that he seeks you out, that his spirit is now moving in and among us, convicting, yes, breaking hearts, that they might be made whole, that they might be made new. This week in the New York Times, columnist Jessica Bennett wrote a piece entitled Leah Michelle and the Question of Second Chances. Some of you will know the celebrity context perhaps behind that article. But what most interested me was the honest point that Bennett made that in so many ways in our culture now, there is no way back from wrongdoing. There is no way of reckoning with what we find under the surface. No clear ritual of reconciliation, she writes. No clear script. It seems to me that the gift of our readings this morning, the word of God to us this day, is an invitation, is a pointing toward a path that leads to restoration. And that path counterintuitively involves the breaking of our hearts, the destruction of illusions we hold about ourselves. And it involves an entry into sadness. Like David doesn't write Psalm 51, he's like, I'm a hot mess, isn't it kind of funny? He is grieved by what has happened. The path proceeds to confession, to acknowledging and accepting our responsibility. But the path also offers the glorious hope of restoration, rooted in God's enduring mercy, rooted in God seeking you out. The path surely ends in the hope of a new heart. And the path ends where we all, the sinners of God in Christ, are saved to sin no more. Let's walk this path together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.